Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Aaron Fulkerson. Aaron is a general manager of ServiceNow Impact. Aaron is also an advisor to multiple technology companies. And prior to ServiceNow, Aaron founded and eventually sold a company called MindTouch, a provider of knowledge management solutions for organizations. Aaron, thanks for coming on today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Darren. So take me back in time. I know you have a little bit of a different background in terms of your career and how you grew up. I'd love to hear more about that. I started my career probably at a more mature age than most because I didn't go to college until I was 25. And my career began at Microsoft, where I was doing distributed systems research in their incubation team under the chief strategy officer. And then I started an open source project that became very popular. I turned that into a commercial endeavor as a software as a service company that was called MindTouch, where I was the founder and CEO. What prompted a little bit of a delay in terms of starting your career later? Just curious. Oh, I was traveling. So I spent a lot of time backpacking. I lived in northern Minnesota, spent a lot of time in the woods in one of the most beautiful places I've ever been called the Boundary Water Canoe Area Wilderness along the Canadian border in northern Minnesota. So I would, I would you know, spend weeks in the wood or woods or uh, hit the road and travel around the country or backpack Europe. And I was a line cook, sous chef, executive chef, and I worked in restaurants for as long as it took me to save enough money for the next adventure. But I always knew I was going to go to college. And uh, being that I grew up in Northern California, in a, at the time it was a little rural farm town called Morgan Hill that's adjacent to San Jose, I had access to the internet before there was one. It was you know dial-up bulletin board services, and I got a taste of software and um, being able to connect with people around the world. So that set the course for my career even though I spent many years where I wasn't involved with that. But it was something that a seed was planted at a young age, you know, in the 80s when I was on computers and networking, connecting over networks to people on computers. I saw the potential for really connecting with people and making the world a better place. And that's what inspired me to later come back for college, studying uh, applied mathematics, computer science, and pursue a career in software. Yeah, I'd love to get to that in a minute. But just in terms of those travels, that's wild in terms of living in the woods and just saving enough money to go on to that next stop. Like, What were some of the lessons that you learned from that that you carry forward today? Oh, I think a lot of it has to do with just, you know, you find happiness inside yourself and understanding, just having a better perspective on who you are and what helps you find contentment in life. A lot of it was born out of you know, time spent traveling, time spent alone. And then also, you know, another thing I'd say is traveling and meeting people from different cultures and backgrounds really informed a lot of my worldview and made me a lot more empathetic. You know, it made me understand people a lot better. 
Yeah, there's so much value in that. I know for me, I've spent time, lived abroad in Switzerland as a kid for a year, spent the summer in Barcelona before business school, did a semester in Milan, started a company in the south of Brazil, and just so much that I learned and, and gained and really made me who I am today uh, from being more empathetic to learning about different people and cultures and seeing things from different perspectives. I know there's so much value in that. And just also, I think that's really neat that most people are just jumping into their careers right away. And we think we're adults when we graduate college, but probably not in hindsight in terms of how much we didn't know. But I think that's really valuable in terms of how you spent those years. Yeah. And I learned a lot traveling abroad, but also just traveling around the United States. I spent a lot of time in the South. I ended up going to school at Chapel Hill in North Carolina. Um, During my time at Chapel Hill, uh, and even before, I went to a community college called Durham Technical Community College. I built uh, nonprofit organizations, one of which was uh, community technology centers inside of public housing communities for underserved, predominantly minority youth. So getting a perspective on people who have differing backgrounds, who have different world experiences and circumstances and understanding that they have different challenges than many of us, right? Whether they grew up in poverty, I'll give you an example, like in Durham at this time, this was in 99, Durham's much more affluent now, but at this time there was uh, folks that I was working with who lived in public housing communities, kids who literally would spend, as did their parents, their entire life within like a three to five mile radius. So they just didn't have like a, a lot of worldview about what was possible in their lives. Our first community center was actually at um, an elementary school that my then wife taught at. We got these kids to travel around the world via the internet, like webcams and, and do structured lessons that completely opened their minds to possibilities that they never conceived of previously. So you know, I, the point I was making is that, you know, certainly traveling abroad, meeting people from different cultures and political persuasions certainly informed my worldview. But I would say that a lot of my worldview is informed by people who are living in poverty in our own country and understanding that there's a lot of opportunities to do good work here in the United States that people could really benefit from. Yeah. I mean, I always say if people spent just even a couple hours a week or a couple hours a month, we could solve a lot of problems, both domestically and abroad. So that, I think it's really neat that you did that, spent some time doing some philanthropy and nonprofit work. Yeah. I mean, there was three nonprofits. That particular one, we grew to 16 community centers. Last time I checked, there was still 14 in operation. And it was a public-private collaboration with churches, businesses, and the local government, and also a historically Black college called North Carolina Central University. So they're still in operation and it's had a huge impact in that whole area. Yeah, it just shows once again, the power of technology. So I guess similar to you in some ways, I started a nonprofit when I was in my first couple of years at Accenture around helping senior citizens use the internet to just to connect to people in their world. And it was just really neat to see how these folks discovered technology and email. And I know my grandmother, which is really the spark to do this, her and my grandfather lived in three different African countries, traveled to a hundred different countries in the world and had friends everywhere. And it was just so neat to see the connections that they made and what they learned and just how much it's just really informed their life. Obviously a different use case in terms of the groups that you're talking about, but just, you know, once again, a really powerful point about technology. The second year in this endeavor, one of the things that we recognized was like, Hey, look, we're, we're serving a lot of the children, but 
there's a systemic issue with the parents who don't have a lot of job opportunities. And this particular population, typically their guardians were the grandparents. So we got the grandparents engaged in the community centers and seeing how they interacted with technology was really fascinating just by how incredibly different it was from the children. The children were incredibly curious and willing to explore, and they didn't have any preconceived ideas about what they were capable of relative to technology, whereas the the grandparents, they had this preconceived idea about them being too old. And, well, the kids are really good at this stuff. And it's like, the kids are only good at this because they have the freedom to explore, because they have extra time and the curiosity, and they don't have the same self-limiting belief system around what's possible for them, because they have no interactions before. It's a clean slate. So that was really fascinating to see the different ages approached you know, technology and, and even problem solving, because we integrated the curriculum for uh, learning uh, into the technology for both children and adults. Yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah, so I'd love to actually fast forward a bit. I obviously got a, you know, down a, a rabbit hole, but I, I love hearing about people's backgrounds and where they come from. I think that, that informs so much of who they are as a leader and how they show up in the world. But so tell me how you took this interest in technology and in growing up in Morgan Hill, which is far from a sleepy town anymore and in, in the heart of Silicon Valley. Like, how did you actually jumpstart that in terms of taking that interest in creating a career out of technology? So, you know, I knew that I wanted to do something in software. So I pursued that in college and then I got recruited into Microsoft. We were doing really interesting work that ended up becoming uh, Microsoft Azure, which is their cloud computing services, and also some robotics SDKs that spun out of the work we were doing. I was there very briefly because all we were doing at that time wasn't shipping product. It was writing a patent portfolio and I was very disinterested in that. So I knew that what I wanted to do was... I had this idea coming out of the work I did in North Carolina that I wanted to make knowledge more accessible and free. So I started this open source project that was uh, it was called MindTouch, but we had this enterprise wiki that was like a, a programmable wiki that made it really easy for people to capture and consume information. And the whole idea was really born out of this this concept that you know these these publishing houses like Elsevier and others were controlling and gatekeeping academic research. And it was really difficult for people who didn't have a lot of money like universities to be able to access this academic research. So what I wanted to do was make it possible for anybody to be able to author and publish research. And that's where the whole open source project came from, was this idea that, hey, let's go disrupt this space. It became wildly popular. It was the fourth most popular open source project on the planet for several years. But it went completely in a different direction from what I'd originally thought would be the case. I thought it would be open textbooks and researchers who predominantly used MindTouch, which which was the case. In fact, there's many open textbook projects like one out of UC Davis called LibreText that is the most trafficked open textbook project on the planet that's still powered by MindTouch. But what also it spawned was a whole lot of collaboration with inside of businesses around IT tools, IT wikis, and most notably, customer support. So MindTouch, uh, through our open source, what we realized was there's a real opportunity here to build a business around an open source, uh, or excuse me, a, a customer support knowledge management system. And that's, that's where we launched the business was around knowledge management for businesses and, and enterprises to have a knowledge management solution tied into their customer support function. 
So you talk about open source, and I think not everyone knows what that means. So do you mind just level setting in terms of talking about what open source is, both from a principle and conceptual perspective, but also even as like a business model, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, the probably most known open source is like Linux or Android, which is an operating system where the source code is made available for contributions from anybody. Anybody can download the source code. They can modify the source code. It's covered by a license that requires that any modifications get returned to the community. There's different open source licenses. Not all of them require that your modifications get returned to the community. That's what most people think of when they talk about open sources. You're free to do whatever you want as long as you return your modifications back to the community of people who are also contributing to the source code. So it's something that has really revolutionized how we use computers because the network, the the internet would not exist if it weren't for open source projects like Linux or Apache web servers. There's so many different projects that make up the backbone of the internet. So that's what open source is. And then as far as like a business model, I wouldn't say that open source is a business model, but... It can facilitate lower customer acquisition costs. And this was particularly true before the days of software as a service. You know, there were many open source projects that started a commercial endeavor because the cost of customer acquisition was much lower. People would download the software, uh, start using it in production environments at their companies, and then uh, they would purchase support or they would purchase ancillary uh, capabilities that the, you know, some company would sell around that core open source source code. With the advent of software as a service, right? The customer acquisition cost of having like something I just fill out a web form and then I'm using the application, even lower than I download some source code, I compile it, I install it on my servers, I configure my servers, and then I'm using it. That's just kind of a a quick thumbnail sketch on open source. And there was a proliferation of companies that used open source as a mechanism for driving customer acquisition costs down. It's less prevalent with SaaS now, software as a service, because software as a service just made it even easier. So take me through just in terms of the genesis of your business. So in building off that open source, that organization that you'd built, like how did you go about doing that? And just like talk about some of the intersection points and how you went. And so people can think about how they'd apply that in their own businesses. Well, I think that the key thing is in the, the first stages of MindTouch, where it was more of an open source project that I managed with a, a good friend of mine for many years, you're very close to the customer because the customer is in, installing the software, making modifications to the source code, returning that to the community. So provided you a means of being very close to the customer to understand how best to serve them and generate value for them. In the second stage around software as a service, we just did the same thing. Like we launched a SaaS software as a service knowledge management tool for customer support. The key thing we did there was we just stayed really close to the customers and understood what it was they needed to deliver value through our software. And and I don't think that's really groundbreaking, but I mean that's that's really how it was applied and and what led to all of our successes at MindTouch. And and by the way, we grew that business to eight figures, you know, it was wildly popular as a project. And then we built it into quite a successful company without any uh, venture capital investment, which is what's particularly unusual. It used to be the case that there was a lot of people who could cook up a software project in their garage, right? In the old days, the early days of Silicon Valley and get it to market and grow a business and 
10, $20 million in venture capital investment was a lot of money. Those days are gone. Like to be successful in software or technology, it's like a foot race fueled by hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital investment. So it doesn't matter if you've got like a great product, a great software product or a great technology product, because if you don't have half a billion dollars, you know, $500 million to go to market with through venture capital funding, the other guy who does potentially with an inferior product is just going to be the one that wins. It's just a foot race fueled by venture capital and private equity cash. So it's, it's a really different approach than what it used to be in technology. And it's something that people who aren't in technology might not be familiar with. So what are some of the implications, obviously, beyond just you need huge amounts of investments to win that foot race, so to speak? What does that, what does that imply in terms of the go forward from tech and beyond tech even? Well, I mean, I think that the ability for one to create a really groundbreaking, compelling technology, it's easier than ever, right? You've got different Amazon, you know, you've got Google Cloud Platform, Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure. There's all of these prepackaged capabilities that allow you to build really incredible applications very swiftly and enable them with, you know, artificial intelligence or machine learning and some really incredible things. However, Uh, that means that there's a lot of people building products out there. And the other interesting dynamic that's converged around this, yes, it is easier than ever to build products on technology products, but getting that to market and building a business is more than ever requiring hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital investment. So I guess that the ramifications here are either you need to be really terrific at fundraising, right? Financing, telling a great venture capital pitch, or you have to focus on a small niche market that is uninteresting to a venture capital-backed company, right? And then you attack adjacent markets. You go own that little niche that no VC would ever be interested in because it's so, ah, it's like a 10, $20 million, you know, you can build like a $20 million business or something like that. That's uninteresting. Well, you need to pick a a very particular niche that then allows you to translate into an adjacent market that's an additional 10 or 20, and then an additional market. So there's really two paths here. One, you either focus on very, very niche technology products that you can then grow into adjacent markets, or you need to focus on, okay, I'm going to figure out how I'm going to build a business model that I can tell a compelling story around to a venture capital because it's going to cost me $500 million to get to scale. So take me back a little bit. I'm just curious in terms of the mind touch days. And it, it, it sounds so easy, at least for the person receiving the story. You know, open source project turns into this very successful eight-figure business that, that I know you, you eventually sold. Like, What was that like for you as that first-time CEO? Like, How did you go about just developing those skills that you needed, those behaviors, those leadership attributes that I know you talked about from the early days and even beyond. Like, how do you go about actually learning what it meant to be a, a business leader? Let me first say that getting to you know a million dollars in recurring revenue is incredibly hard. Getting to ten million dollars is a thousand times harder. And for folks who come out of large companies, they will never understand this because. Launching a product at a large company, you can very quickly go from zero to 50 million. And you're like, wow, that was, you know, yes, I I had to nail the product strategy and I had to nail 
the go-to-market product positioning. And I had to make sure that I dialed in the sales incentives appropriately so that my sellers went out and crushed it. But the idea that like launching a 50 million or a hundred million dollar business unit around a product at a large company is way easier than launching a startup and getting to a million dollars in annual recurring revenue. So I, I just want to make sure that that is abundantly clear because for those people who are doing startups, they should know it's not just them that this is hard for. And for those people who are inside of a large enterprise technology company or a big company, they will never understand how hard it is. They just won't until they actually do it themselves. And guess what? 99.9% of them are never going to do it themselves and go out and be an entrepreneur. Nothing wrong with that. That's just not something they're interested in. So first key point, it's really, really hard. Now to answer your actual question, which was, how did I develop some of those leadership skills? It's all about your people. You know, in your book, in fact, you talk, every, every one of the principles in your book, I was like reviewing it earlier today again, which I did read. Thank you so much for sending me a copy. And yeah, you really nail it there. You know, I'll give you some of the key ones. Having a vision that inspires your people and a set of values that everyone can rally around. It is literally the first thing that I always start with, whether it was in my startup or whether it's boards I'm advising or boards I'm serving on, or even in my current efforts at my current employer service now. I start with what is the vision, which for me, what that means is what is the, the incredibly audacious goal that we want to be able to achieve in the next three to five years? And then I always go like, I always have with me a core set of values. I make sure that that vision is something I'm excited about. And as I start to build the team, I make sure that they're aligned around those core set of values. At ServiceNow, it's been pretty easy because the core values at ServiceNow happen to be my same core values worded a little differently. I just use the same ones at ServiceNow, but when I was at my own company, I made sure that I was very, very explicit with these are our core values. And it was something we covered from the very beginning of conversations. Like we interviewed for the core values. And then when we hired, we let them know, like, these are our core values. And you exhibited these core values. That's why we hired you. So that, that's, that's the real starting point there. Take me through that a little bit in terms of developing the values at MindTouch. So where did you go? Like, how do you go about developing those? Were that really, really an extension of yourself? Or like, how did you build those value systems? I'll tell you one of the mistakes I made at MindTouch was it was an extension of myself and my business partner, Steve. And we really treated it like a family. That is unhealthy, by the way. That is not something I would recommend. And there's really good reasons why that's a terrible, terrible idea. But for us around the core values, it was very much like he and I discussed what our core values were. And then we said, look, these, these are the ones that we're going to hire for. And then we made sure that we communicated them prolifically. Now, why is it a horrible idea to treat your business as an extension of yourself and your family? Because if you have your identity so wrapped up in your company, it's incredibly unhealthy for you. But it also makes an environment where people's identity become wrapped up in their employment at that company. And you should not run a company like a family because it really should be run more like a sports team because players get traded. Sometimes players aren't developing at the rate that you need them to be developing and you have to let them go. And when you do, if their identity is wrapped up in the company, it is devastating for them. 
and really, really toxic. Now, you're not doing it to be toxic. You're doing it because you genuinely love these people and you care about them and they share your core values. But if their identity becomes entwined with the company and their role in the company, and at some point the company fails or you have to let them go, it's really damaging to them emotionally and to their self-confidence. Identity is an interesting word and it applies obviously in business. And I think about just even athletes, whether it's even before pro or pro is their identity is being an athlete. Their identity is being, even as a parent, as a father, kids leave the the nest and yeah, you're, of course you're still a parent, but now you have this new identity that you're forging. So, I mean, that, that can be tricky when your identity is associated with a set of values or anything that's part of your life. Yeah. I think it is totally appropriate to associate a set of values with your identity, a set of behaviors with your identity, but not a label, a company, a position, a title, a job, those things that are transient, that come and go, are not things that you should be associating as part of your identity. Whether that's being a husband, like I'll tell you right now, like I went through a divorce and that was something that was part of my identity. Now, what I have reassociated to be part of my identity are the behaviors that make me a good partner and husband. And those are things that I hold dear and I'll continue to hold close to my identity. But me being a husband to a person isn't something that's healthy. That's actually a really interesting distinction in terms of identity versus values versus behaviors. I think that's really powerful. And so you do create that healthy connection to those versus the unhealthy connection. I think it's important. And I think that particularly in our culture, it's something that we over-rotate on, we over-emphasize as a set of labels associated with our identity, like nouns, rather than the verbs Definitely. Hey, I'd love to get back to something else you mentioned just in terms of, I know it's one of the things that you've done really successfully, both within the startup world, but also in large companies, is this idea of creating that vision that expires, creating a set of values that people can rally around. Do you mind just talking about it really practically speaking, how you go about executing on those? And I think it'd be really interesting to talk about how that differs in a startup context versus in a large organization? Because obviously, this audience, there's some that are entrepreneurs, some that work for large companies. I think it'd be interesting to talk about both how you actually execute on that vision, but then also how that differs between startups and big companies. Yeah, happy to. So, you know, you've got your vision. It's three to five years out. You need to turn that into what is my 12-month mission? That 12-month mission then gets mapped into, cool, if our 12-month mission is this, what are the obstacles preventing us from achieving that mission? This, this is where I go. And I, I do this collaboratively with my team. Our 12-month mission is laid out for us right here. We all agree that we're going to achieve this. Then we map out what are the things that are preventing us from achieving that mission. We write them down. We design tactics against those obstacles that are designed to achieve our mission. Then quarterly, we come back and revisit. And it's a fascinating exercise because all of those obstacles that the team thought were so insurmountable and impossible, you start scratching them off. And it's so motivating and so inspiring for the team. And it creates fuel and acceleration toward your mission objective. And it also allows you to update your tactics every quarter. So not only do you go like, oh man, I cannot believe we actually crossed that off. The resource constraint around this aspect or you know, political challenges around this partner. You start scratching them off and it just, okay, time to redesign the tactics and update them. That's like real tactically how I do this. I mean, I left off the whole like metric side of this, right? Which is 
How do we know we're achieving the mission? What are the specific metrics? And that gets updated quarterly too. I'll say one thing that's very different between a startup and a mature company is the challenge with the mature companies is everybody tries to start from step 100 instead of step one. So they become so overwhelmed with where we're going on the vision statement or the mission statement, they can't think through, hey, look, it's, it starts with the first step. Like start with what is steps one, two, three, not steps 50, 60, 70. And universally, I've observed humans just do this. They immediately jump way ahead and start trying to drive toward you know, step 100 instead of starting with step one. And it becomes overwhelming and demoralizes them. That's common among any stage of company. What is interesting and different in a larger organization is you have so many resources available to you inside of a larger company that that becomes overwhelming. You know, startups, whether you're an actual startup or a large company, they drown. They don't starve. And when you're inside of a large organization, there's a lot more resources being thrown at you and a lot more people grabbing at you that will cause you to drown. So you have to be even more focused inside of a larger organization so that you can rise above the noise and prevent yourself from being drowned by all of the thousands of people literally coming at you, trying to be helpful or trying to get what they need from you. That's probably one of the biggest differences. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think people generally think about startups as being focused because it's whether it's scarcity of capital or a short runway to actually bring a product to market or to to win that foot race. But just interesting in terms of the difference in, in a large company, that focus because of the the other distractions, the people that are, you know, clamoring for time, attention, budget, et cetera. That's an interesting distinction. For sure. I mean, another thing that's very different is when you're inside of a larger organization, the way you show up has to be, and and by the way, I'm just learning this one. You know, I'm a very casual person. I'm very playful. I really genuinely care a great deal for the people I work with. I've been fortunate enough that I can be very choosy about who I work with. That means that when the way I show up tends to be like, you know, pretty playful and casual. Inside of a larger organization, you have to be less casual. You just do. Because there's just too much opportunity for your behavior to be misinterpreted or to become a limiting factor for you inside of a larger organization, especially because you're working cross-functionally with so many different people who don't have the context necessary to understand you. It's unfortunate, but it is one of the realities of being in a larger organization that the way you show up needs to be more buttoned up. So take me through in terms of that visioning exercise. And obviously you're in a unique position as a running a division, having been the CEO of a startup. Like, What does that mean for more of the mid-level managers, even senior managers and below? How do they think about that same exercise around establishing vision or just cascading the vision of the, the most senior leader in the organization or within a division across their team? Like, Can you break that down a little bit in terms of what that implies for the mid-level managers? Yeah, I can tell you Here's the difference between startup versus large company too. In a startup, you have believers. Maybe it's because they're early in career. Maybe they haven't been punched in the face enough to become cynical. They just believe. Inside of a larger company, the feedback that you're going to get is, this is ridiculous. There's no way we're going to be able to achieve this. 
there's a cynicism inside of larger organizations that you find far less of inside of startups. So the way that you overcome that cynicism is there's um, a great video that I actually show my team when they become cynical about the cross-functional partners being unable to get aligned or believe. Some of your listeners might have actually seen this, and I totally recommend watching it. It's a outdoor festival called like, I think it's Sasquatch Festival in somewhere in Colorado. And you see this guy just dancing crazy, just absolutely having the most amazing time by themselves dancing. And somebody's like recording a video of them. And you know, they're like, this guy's crazy. This guy's absolutely ridiculous. And then one person comes and joins them. By the way, I think this was a TED Talk. Like I didn't see the TED Talk. Somebody else later told me it was in a TED Talk. Then shortly thereafter, a few more people come over. And next thing you know, this guy has started this full-on massive dance party at this outdoor festival. So the thing I tell my team, it takes believing in the mission, keeping a positive attitude, applying pressure with kindness across our cross-functional partners, and with time, they will join the dance party. I've seen it. I've, I've been at a large company quite successfully now for over three years. Yeah, I've had to do some math there. Over three years. And I've been able to execute on this over and over and over again. But those are kind of the key ingredients, right? Is you're going to come into contact with people who are cynical. They think that the vision and mission, forget the vision, they think the mission is impossible to achieve, right? The 12 to 18 month, oh, that's, there's no way we're going to get that done. And the way you turn them over is you do it. You do it one step at a time. You do it with a positive attitude. You do it with kindness and apply consistent pressure with kindness. Yeah, this reminds me of the comment you made in our last conversation. You talked about people say, hey, you know, Aaron, you're really good at sales. I'd love just to hear more about <laughs> like what you meant by that and just in how you bring that to life within all the different business experiences you've had. I've heard this many times in my career. And it, it is, so I'm a product person. Like that's what I consider myself is I love designing product. But what do I mean by that? There's no point in designing a product that nobody uses. So a product leader designs a product with a go-to-market in mind. Like how do I get my product to market and help it scale? Because as a product leader, what do I care about? That I have the most possible users on the planet, <laughs> right? MindTouch, perfect example. Literally tens of millions of monthly users on MindTouch. That is something that I was very most proud of. Like, wow, I'm really having a positive impact here. So when I'm designing a product, it's with a go-to-market in mind that maximizes my potential for driving value for end users because I know that's what helps me get users to adopt the product. And it also has to be done in a way that lowers the potential friction for users to be acquired, right? To come onto the product. So I'm giving you this context because we were talking about this previously and I shared with you the story of uh, how throughout my career, I've had people say, wow, you're really great at the sales stuff. It's not about sales. It's about leadership. What is leadership? It's inspiring people toward a vision and then motivating them to achieve as part of like this movement toward that vision and then providing a belonging environment that removes deadlock and race conditions that would prevent them from achieving that vision. 
And if that's sales, I guess in, in like you could apply those concepts successfully to sales, but it's really a matter of leadership. Like, how do you effectively be a leader? So how do you impart that upon your team? So obviously this is a natural skill and behavior you've acquired over the years, but how do you impart that to the people that report to you and just even outward within the organization? One of the things that I commonly coach my team on is you always, Simon Sinek, you start with why. What is the why behind the engagement with this cross-functional partner? Why should they care to be helpful on our mission? That's one of the like really foundational principles is being capable of communicating why to a partner to lead them, to influence them in a positive way, to join our mission is one of the critical skills. So that means communicating, like understanding them, what matters to them, and then making sure that, hey, look, what you care about overlaps with what we care about. So this is our shared why. Now, let me communicate to you in a very simple, easy to understand way, the first step. That's the coaching that I do within my team around, hey, how do we apply leadership cross-functionally? Because everybody on my team, all the way down to the individual contributors who are early in career, are leaders. And they're expected to lead. It's how you're successful in life and business. Yeah, I think a lot from a behavior change perspective, starting with why. So why, what, how? Obviously, why is like, what's the value in in doing something differently because it is hard. It requires an extra step, whether it's about adapting your communication or tailoring your approach to the people you're working with. And it's like, okay, what are you trying to do? And then how do you actually do it? But that why is so important. Like, why do I want to change something I've been doing my entire life, my entire career and do something that's fundamentally different? Yeah. And in a large organization, what you'll encounter is, oh yeah, we tried that. Oh, I remember that somebody tried that two years ago. So you know, what makes you think that you're going to be able to pull this off? Somebody else has already tried that and multiple times. I've encountered that in every one of my missions at ServiceNow. And I think of each mission as kind of a tour of duty of 12 to 18 months. Every single one of them I've encountered that cynicism or skepticism, maybe it's more skepticism than cynicism at that point. And every one of those missions I've so far been successful in achieving. I think it really just goes back to Building a team of people with a shared vision, a shared set of values that they believe in, who are capable of leading in the manner I just described, and always keeping a positive attitude. That's, that's all you can do. Is like, that's probably one of the number one things that I spend my time on with my team coaching is just keeping a positive attitude, you know, encouraging them to maintain positivity. Yeah, it's funny that, I don't know if it's funny, but um, just truth is that in the entrepreneurial world, you know, there's so much skepticism, cynicism. You tell an idea to a friend, oh, that won't work. It's just so hard. Same thing in a corporate world too. Like, oh, we've tried that. Oh, we tried that two years ago. That won't work. Because you have those same skeptics, I guess, in any aspect of our life or business. Yeah, I've always said that, well, I used to say that entrepreneurism required pathological optimism. I think it's leadership requires pathological optimism because I mean, what I'm doing inside of a larger organization, granted, I did start up a new business division, but even before when I joined a previous business division that was in place, it just requires pathological optimism. You know, I talked to my team about, I want to work with SpongeBob SquarePants. I love SpongeBob SquarePants. 
He's hardworking. He's full of grit. And he's always positive. And he's super kind. He's a really kind guy. Uh, I think that we can learn a lot from SpongeBob. So I love to actually ask you a question because I know we talked about before, you mentioned this idea of being a specialist versus a generalist. And I have my own point of view and learned through my own experience, but I'd just be curious your perspective in terms of the value of being a specialist versus a generalist. There's nothing wrong with being one or the other. Some people are going to gravitate toward one versus the other. I think great leaders are people who have been a specialist, but are generalists. That could be a product specialist, an engineering specialist, a sales specialist, but they have to be good at a a good range of things. So to be leading at scale. As we continue to develop technologies that are able to replace people's jobs, what we're going to learn, and we're seeing it now, is the more specialized you are, the more capable that we will be able to replace you with some algorithm. AI or machine learning. We used to think that being a specialist in medicine or programming would give you security, but we're seeing that's just not the case. The more specialized you are, the more easy it is to replace that role with algorithms. Yeah, it's interesting. I found in the early stages of my career, I felt like that inch deep in just a number of topics was a bit of a detriment. And I saw friends in finance or whatever it was just really advancing really quickly. But I learned over time that when you have enough depth in all of those different dimensions, it can be really powerful. That's something that I, I've taken for me in, in my career, my life. But you make it a very interesting point in terms of the replaceability. And it feels like several years ago, not that long ago, everyone's like, let's become a software developer. And now it's like, well, the hard skills, but now it's like the return of the soft skills again and some of the that approach around being more of a generalist. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, Aaron, hey, I appreciate your time. I know you got a lot going on, but uh, thanks for coming on today. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure. And thanks so much for your book. I loved it. And uh, I, I wrote some notes in the margin for follow-up and dog-eared some sections. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to be recommending it to my team to read as well. So thanks for your time, Darren. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks and see you all in the next episode.